time has come is we've got to go the extra step. From the political science department at UW-Madison. I'll compromise. We want to get the job done. I'm Addison Lathers. Geez, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to balance the power here. And I'm Claire Salome. It's a patriotic responsibility, for God's sake. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are super excited for the opportunity to interview Anton Shurikov, a PhD candidate in the political science department. Now, Anton studies media, propaganda, misinformation, political polarization, and trust. But before graduate school, Anton worked as a journalist and an editor in Russian media covering politics and technology. His dissertation combines large-scale cross-national survey analyses with original experiments and surveys in Russia to examine how individuals respond to pervasive propaganda and censorship. We'll ask Anton about his time as a journalist in Russia, as well as his research and its application to contemporary politics in the U.S. and Russia. But uh, anyways, thank you for being with us today. Uh, I know I'm really excited about this conversation. Thanks, me too. So I guess let's just kick things off. Oh, since it is the first time we've had you on the podcast, let's start with a little bit about you and your background. So we're super curious about what set you on the pathway towards becoming a PhD student in political science and studying media and propaganda, as well as political polarization and trust in authoritarian regimes. So, you know, maybe share with us your academic and professional narrative, maybe beginning with your MA in political science. Sure. So the the first, I guess, yeah, that was my first experience with political science. And that happened at European University in St. Petersburg, which is really one of a kind institution in Russia. It's basically a Western style PhD program, but back then it did not award PhD degrees. It was a Russian equivalent of that. And when I entered the program, I was working mainly on the political economy of Russia's regions. As at that point, there was this idea that as communism collapsed in Russia, uh, Russia became this conglomerate of many states. And, and those states were kind of laboratories of democracy, right? We could, by, by looking at them, we could see how democratic institutions emerge, how more authoritarian institutions emerge. And my studies were primarily about how legislative or exa- legislative executive relations develop in, in the regions. I was pretty happy by, uh, about doing that, but at some point, one of my friends in the program who was part-time writing for a regional magazine suggested that I might, I might try that too, as it was something fun to do. And given my regional expertise, it could be useful. So I thought, why not? Why, why not try that? And going there, I, I just wanted to, you know, to look at how it would be to work for a wider audience, to work at a different pace. And it was really fun. And I somehow got sucked in. So I, at first I was doing my dissertation. I was, uh, I was working as a journalist. But then by the time I finished the dissertation um, at USP and moved to Moscow, I became basically a full-time journalist. And so that's what uh, I was doing for, for the next few years. And then, yeah, then, then I, at some point I started thinking about going back into academia. That's fun. Because... 
I have edited uh, like grad students work and it's such like a learning curve for them to try to take like their academic brain and put it into, you know, a third grade reading level. What was that, mm -hmm. what was that experience like for you? Yeah, that was, that was really exciting um, in, in the sense that I felt like an expert because uh, most other journalists did not have academic training, um, at, at least in political science or economy. And I really felt like I was, I was able to translate some academic knowledge. But at the same time, I also felt like I am the sort of gateway for academics into journalism because I brought some, some other friends into writing columns or professors doing interviews. And I mean, yeah, it was, it was really interesting to be at the intersection of, of, of these two worlds. Well, speaking of that intersection, I think we would love to hear a little bit more about your time as a journalist in Russia, where you were covering politics and technology and media. Could you give us an example of some of your, maybe your favorite or standout stories you think of from being a reporter? Yeah. So like what's interesting is that most of my time in journalism, I was more of an editor than, than a reporter. Um, I mean, it was some blurry line between that. But mostly I was managing other journalists, you know, assigning topics, figuring out how to bring what they're doing into shape. I worked for, for a number of independent news outlets in Russia, online and newspapers. And it was really a fun experience until a certain point. Um, and I'll talk about that later. It was this fast-paced environment, needing to quickly respond to what's unraveling, what's happening currently and interacting with a much wider audience and feeling like you really can shape what people, well, not maybe what people think about, about a topic, but at least their interest toward the topic and help them uh, gain more information on that. And there were, there were a number of challenging moments, I would say, in that one of them came uh, when I was acting editor-in-chief of one of the, of, of a new online magazine that covered politics and economy. And at one point, what happened is that one of our journalists wrote a critical piece about real estate market in Moscow. And one of the characters in that piece, uh, an influential developer, didn't like the piece. So he was really a, an important person in Moscow. His brother was a vice prime minister. Reading this, he thought, what the hell? Why, why are these people writing something about me that makes me look bad? So he called the owners of, of the magazine, of the company, and, and they called me. And they said, well, this guy, he's called, his name is uh, Misha. He's, he's a good guy. Why don't you listen to him, what he has to say? Maybe you cut him from Slack. Um, I said, okay, I can talk to him. And then it was a really tense half an hour of this, I don't know, like a millionaire trying to convince me that um, we should either amend the article or publish another one that reflects what he thinks. I was just trying to explain to him that that's not how things work, you know, in journalism, unless you have any sort of, you have any reasons to dispute the facts, then you can't do that. And it really went nowhere. We didn't change anything and he was dissatisfied. So um, ultimately the owners kind of became less satisfied with my work as well because they were sort of friends with this guy. But it was really interesting in learning, a kind of enlightening experience, I would say, like learning how things work between, uh, between big business and media in Russia. Another case, I guess, I'm kind of more fond of is 
a couple of years later, I went to create an opinions page for a large media company called RBC. And I came there, it was an interesting task because it was basically creating an opinion page from, from scratch. So I, I started working on that, but then a couple of weeks I went by and I, I felt like I, I, I'm not achieving anything. It doesn't really work. So I came to the editors, my bosses, and said, look, guys, I don't think I can do this. I think I suck at this. Why don't you just fire me? I, I, I go somewhere else. And then surprisingly, they said, well, the good thing is that you're trying and we think you can make progress. So you just keep trying. I think it took a couple more months, but I was able to build a process that produces several opinion pieces per day. And it was really good at, at the end to know that something that you, that you have felt to be impossible, that you can actually do this. So yeah, I mean, there were lots of other experiences, both pleasant and less pleasant, but it was an interesting time. What made you want to turn back to academia and, you know, start applying to PhD programs like UW-Madison's? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I started working in journalism in Russia, I think it was a really great time for journalists, for, for media, because while journalism in Russia is historically quite young, by that time, it had accumulated decent expertise and there, were, there was money in the market. And so there, they emerged a, a number of really high quality publications that could do both quality news reporting and investigative journalism. And it was really exciting for, for sort of younger journalists then. But then as I was working uh, as a journalist and an editor, I just witnessed how the government gradually and increasingly increased the pressure on, on the media. Because at first it was like, yes, there is some pressure, but you can't go around it. You can you can publish what you think you, you need to publish. But in, in just a couple of years, what they started doing is shutting down publications, calling owners to fire journalists, fire editors, or calling advertisers to withdraw their ads from, from media companies. So lots of different ways of pressuring the media. And it increasingly looked like they are just trying to kill the independent, uh, the independent media market in Russia. They just wanted to bring this all under control in, in, in some of the other way. It became really harsh at some point when uh, one of my colleagues, a journalist, who was arrested on a bogus charge just you know, for investigating corruption in, in the space industry. Uh, lots of cases like that. And at some point, it was uh, I just felt like I'm soon I'm not going to have any options working for independent media in Russia. I will just have to do something really different. So that was one of the reasons. But the other reason was that I was getting tired of this daily grind and constantly following the news, constantly having to keep up and come up with new stories, um, new sort of topics every day. I wanted to do something more substantive and something where I would be able to do actual research rather than just write about things or edit things. And I also, I also wanted to master advanced methods. So ultimately, I think the the best solution was to just to go to to go back to academia, but to start with a, a PG program, uh, preferably in, in the United States. Just to follow up here, I know this isn't an official question, but do you have any inkling as to why the climate towards independent journalists changed so much over the time that you were working? 
I would say it was just an extension of the Russian state becoming more and more authoritarian. By in parallel, they what they did is they crushed the opposition. They they started arresting opposition leaders um, and pushing some people out of the country and increasing control over businesses. So uh, and civil society NGOs. So it was just just part of one big process of uh, creating this current new authoritarian Russia. And the media was just, were just one of the victims of that. Sure. We're going to jump into talking about some of your research now. So your dissertation is titled, Who Trusts Untrustworthy Media, Political Biases and Information Credibility in Authoritarian Regimes. Lots of big official sounding words. Can you tell us about some of the main questions that you're addressing in that piece? Yeah. So one of the main questions is, why so many people in countries like Russia, in autocracies like Russia, still trust and use state-controlled media, even though these media are often just vehicles of state propaganda. So if you, for example, turn on Russian TV, what you will see is this really bizarre world where everything that's going on in Russia is just fantastic. And Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, is this hero who every day saves Russia from evil forces and this means usually United States or NATO. Um, only Putin was able to prevent Russia's complete collapse. And you don't hear anything about corruption or any sort of criticism. Lots of people cannot just go on TV and, and say same. they're just forbidden from doing that. So you might think that when people watch television that is super censored and super biased, on some level, they must understand that this is all a lie, that uh, they shouldn't trust this, that they should turn to other media that are more independent. But the, the problem is that often they don't. And I felt this myself when I was working as a journalist in Russia. As um, we were doing a lot of uh, quality work, uh, putting out investigations, putting out quality reporting and, and opinion, but um, only a small minority of Russians were actually interested in that. Uh, most people were just fine or seemed fine watching state television. I, then I did not really understand why that is happening. And when I came to do my PhD studies, I decided that I would investigate this more systematically. And I would try to understand why, uh, why people trust this media and under what conditions people generally believe propaganda. And what are some of the main findings to date that have come out of that work? And maybe what are the implications that you see for those findings? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the main finding, uh, what one of the main findings is that a lot of people in Russia do actually find the coverage of this propagandistic state media trustworthy, and uh, they actually find this media relatively accurate. And that happens, well, or at least one of the reasons why that happens is that those people share an identity and share sort of worldviews with Putin and his government. And as a result of that, when, when they look at the, at the coverage of this media, they just don't have the capacity to understand how often a state media lie to them. I mean, we know that political biases like that operate in the United States quite often. But what my analysis shows is that this applies to autocracies like Russia. This is really a worldwide phenomenon. And on the contrary, what seems especially interesting is that people, many people in Russia uh, actually distrust media that are more independent, that provide more balanced, more objective coverage. And that is because they, they view this media as being too critical of Russia, too critical of the government. And uh, the implication of that 
is that it's really hard to fight propaganda and disinformation that comes from, from the Kremlin, from other autocrats. We were sort of used to think that if we give people the truth, if we provide them access to independent news sources, if we provide them alternative information, then they will be able to understand how lying the governments are, how we, we will be able to sort of open their eyes. But the problem here is that a lot of people, uh, despite how absurd, how biased the media are, they are not really interested in opening, opening up their eyes. They are, they are completely fine in, in these echo chambers of propaganda. And an implication for, uh, for democracies, I think, or at least for governance in democratic countries, is that there's really not much you can do about it. You can't just let people in those countries know that, that they are deceived by propaganda. You have to somehow hope that people would understand it themselves at, at, at some point. So as you noted, I mean, your research has implications for Russia, but what about maybe the U.S., which seems, in at least our estimations, to be also flooded with misinformation and a level of propaganda that is just becoming normalized? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and interestingly, in, in some ways, uh, some of those actors who push propaganda in the United States, some hyperpartisan media, they mirror or borrow techniques that autocrats like Putin use in some ways. No, in, in some ways they invent something new. In, in terms of the implications, I think one, one thing to remember is, uh, or to understand, is that we, we have not seen the end of it. Um, it might get even, even worse because if people, like, like people in Russia, uh, if people in Russia, let's say, are, are able to sort of suppress their disbelief in the face of very absurd and very uh, clearly deceitful, uh, deceiving coverage. It, wouldn't, it shouldn't be a surprise to us when we see something like that in, in, in more democratic countries, when people could believe just outrageous misinformation. And, and I think, unfortunately, my research suggests that while there probably is a limit to what people could believe, those limits could be stretched pretty, pretty far. At the same time, there are limits, and my research also suggests that, for example, if you if you talk even about strongest fervent Putin supporters, none of them would believe the most absurd and most uh, ridiculous statements of propaganda. And a lot of people actually in in Russia, even even among supporters of the government, they still are skeptical about state-run media, about propaganda. Um, the problem is that first they are not as skeptical as they should be. And uh, they are also skeptical about independent media. So that might be actually a stronger problem. Do you think that part of the issue with the civilian population not seeking out independent media is just, did you get the sense that it was because they didn't want to go through the effort of finding a source other than state-run media? Like, is that the most available to them? That is definitely part of the problem uh, because the government tries to, if not block, but then make access to independent media more, more difficult. You can, find, you can still find independent media online in Russia, um, but not everyone wants to go online. Not everyone wants to even search for those news outlets. And if you go, for example, news aggregator in Russia, then you would see mostly sources, news from state-aligned sources. It would be harder to find independent news coverage. But I think that's, uh, that, that's just one part of the problem. The other part of the problem is that people don't have incentive to do so. Because there is some research that suggests that when something 
serious, something problematic happens in Russia, then people are more likely to, to go to, to independent websites. It's just that in, in, in most cases, they, they are more or less fine, they're comfortable with whatever coverage they receive from state media. And they just don't feel the need to look for an alternative. Yeah, that sounds familiar even for democratic states as well. I think yes, that's an overarching theme. <laughs> Let's jump now to a forthcoming book that you've written called Russia Muddling Through Populism and the Pandemic. Could you give us a little background on that project and the primary research questions that you looked at for the book? I have to say that I am the author or the co-author for one of the chapters in the project. So this is a big collaborative project that looks at how populists around the world responded to COVID and to, to the political pressures created by, by the pandemic. And this project looks at, looks at a couple dozen countries, uh, including the United States, Brazil, Turkey, um, and a lot of other countries where uh, populist leaders or populist parties are prominent. I and my co-authors, Yoshiko Ferreira, who's a professor at political science department, and Valerio Manets, who's um, another PhD student in, in our program, we are looking at Russia, um, and one of our chapters is, is about how Putin's government responded to, uh, to the pandemic and to what extent this response, to what extent Putin himself could be considered a populist, to what extent his and his government's response can be considered a populist response. So that's, uh, that's the background for, for the project. To kind of build off of that, how has Russia muddled through the COVID pandemic? I mean, to our eyes, the Western media, at least, has not really spent that much time covering how Russia has handled COVID. There was the Russian vaccine and some critical reports. Um, but how has Russia handled COVID among government elites? And are there any implications for the general population? So with, uh, with COVID, there is, a, I would say, a paradoxical situation. Um, because Russia, um, I mean, I, I should probably say a, a couple of things about Putin as a populist to sort of to put this into perspective. So Putin, we, we do not consider Putin as a populist leader as such, um, or other, as, as a typical populist. But uh, what he practices, some, some scholars call populism from above. I mean, basically, Putin is trying to play this, play this game, but where he, he is the most powerful and influential person in Russia on the one hand, but at the same time, he portrays himself as an ordinary guy, as this person who completely understands and represents ordinary Russians and fights corrupt bureaucrats, corrupt oligarchs on their behalf. And this is the line that, that's been pretty successful so far. And this is the line that Putin also tried to push through the pandemic. So it's interesting that the government throughout the pandemic was in relatively efficiently, if not very effectively. So it relied on um, pretty sound advice from, uh, from health experts, and it introduced a number of restrictions uh, uh, to, to stop the spread of COVID. And it also put a lot of effort into developing its own vaccine, uh, which turned out to be, if not without shortcomings, but rather effective, so it works. Uh, there are some questions about the studies that, that, are, that examine its effectiveness, but in, in practice, it it is widely used in Russia, and um, it, it seems to be working. So uh, against this background, however, what Putin was doing is he was able to, uh, he, was, he was trying to portray himself as someone who is 
just looking at these efforts uh, and taking all the credit, but not taking any of the blame. So um, he tried to be somewhere. So he first tried to not associate himself with, with the pandemic, um, anti-pandemic measures. So obviously people don't like restrictions and what Putin was trying to say, well, this is the government's work. This is what they decide to do. Okay, that's, that's, that, that's their job. Okay, but if they're doing, if they're intervening too much, I will jump in, I will stop them. He was also pushing responsibility for any of those measures uh, on, on regional governors. So he himself was busy with other more serious problems. At least that's what, that was how he was portraying himself. And one of the downsides of this approach, I think, was that um, in Russia, we, as I said, we have this paradoxical situation, even though the government is, is trying to do something about, about COVID and it has the vaccine, there is really enormous resistance from the public, um, both in terms of adhering to uh, measures of isolation, wearing masks and, 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 and other restrictions, and also in terms of vaccination. So even today, um, I think by official record, only about half Russians are vaccinated. Uh, that's that's much less than even in the United States, and even uh, and you know, United States there are there are people who do not want to be vaccinated. There, there is resistance as well, but in Russia, it's it's even worse than that. And I think the, even the official numbers may not be entirely correct because uh, what happened is that a lot of people just bought their certificates. From, from doctors, from, from nurses. So they, they actually didn't do the vaccine. Um, and the number of deaths from COVID is, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not an official record, but it seems to be comparable to what we had in the United States, which is a much bigger country. And that's, that's a result of this uh, resistance from, from the public. And I think one of the reasons for this is this inconsistent line from Putin. So like his, his attempts to, uh, distance himself from 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 the government's efforts. Like if he if he took uh, responsibility for that, if he said, "Listen, we need to we need to do this. I am I I, I am being vaccinated. Everyone's doing that. We everyone uh, it's it's important for us." I think it would have been better. But the problem is that uh, he didn't want to risk it because he thought that he would lose in popularity by sort of promoting those measures. But the the downside was that Russia didn't go didn't do really well ultimately in terms of uh, fighting the pandemic, and now I think they are in this in the in the middle of the the Omicron wave. Uh, things are getting worse, uh, at least at the moment. At the very beginning of the pandemic, I remember people talking about how authoritarian regimes might have an advantage in controlling the spread of the pop of um, COVID throughout the population. And I'm curious if you have any opinion on why the pattern now in Russia is so similar to the pattern in the US. That's an exciting question. I think when people, uh, what, so this argument that you mentioned, I think when people talked about this, they probably had regimes like China, but the government can really control a lot of things. And we know that they are doing, they can just shut down a city if, if there are some cases and they can force everyone to, to do the vaccine. So they have a lot of repressive capacity. In countries like Russia, these regimes are built on something uh, less tangible. So they, they can use repression, but mostly they rely on 
popularity, on propaganda, on, on, on those connections with people. But the problem is, of course, is that it all works well when, when, when things are good, when the economy is doing well, but when there are problems, uh, they cannot really rely on that. So that's kind of the, the trade-off for Putin. So he could either try to use more uh, stricter measures to enforce vaccination, but as he relies so much on this resource of popularity, of his own personal popularity, he was really afraid to, to do that, I think, to do that because if you go this repression route, then there might not be a way back and you cannot, it could be that you would not restore this popularity that you had before. Uh, so far, it's been working. Uh, so trust in government, support for Putin, they, they fell for a while in the beginning of the, of the pandemic, but now they are more or less at the pre-crisis levels, um, even though the government, even though the country is not doing well in terms of the pandemic, at least Putin was able to preserve uh, his popularity um, at substantial human cost, I think. So interesting. Since we have you here today and you are a PhD student studying Russia and you're a former journalist, we're hoping we could ask you about the simmering crisis between Russia and Ukraine at the border. It's what everyone is talking about right now, every episode of The yeah. Daily for the past week. We're wondering if you could briefly give our listeners maybe some historical background on the tension to start, just because some may be too young to remember the complexities of 2014. Yeah, uh, I think one important thing to remember is Ukraine, or at least parts of what is contemporary Ukraine, it has been a part of Russia for a long time, and then along with Russia, part of the Soviet Union. And so there are, Russia is, Russians and Ukrainians have had a lot of interaction uh, throughout the uh, last couple centuries, and not all of those interactions were pleasant. And, and when the Soviet Union collapsed, Ukraine became, and, and then Russia, of course, became independent states. Well, one of the problems is that some Russians uh, felt that uh, this separation was not entirely fair. And for example, the Crimea, which, which is or uh, was part of Ukraine, um, that many people in Russia believe that this is uh, historically Russian territory, uh, which is uh, actually not obvious that it was. Um, but people felt like Crimea was taken from them. And also that the Russian speaking and ethnically Russian population in, in Ukraine is, is being discriminated against. Again, I, I don't know how, how true it was. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say it's obvious, but this is how, how a lot of people in Russia felt. And um, throughout this post-Soviet period, right, you, inside Ukraine, again, to simplify things a little bit, governments sort of alternated between more pro-Russian and more pro-Western governments. And as this happened, the Kremlin and Putin personally became increasingly worried that Ukraine might become permanently allied with the West. And the problem that, uh, is that Putin and his inner circle, they, they consider Ukraine this buffer zone between, between Russia and the West, or even just a part of the sphere of Russian interests. I, I, I don't know really why they are so afraid uh, of West militarily threatening Russia. I don't think that's something that's going to happen, uh, or would have would have happened uh, if the things were as they as they were before 2014. But there was this concern and probably fear in the Kremlin that 
making Ukraine more pro-Western means that there is a direct threat to Russia. I think throughout the years, they were thinking about different solutions to this. But in 2014, when another uh, revolution happened in Ukraine and uh, a corrupt pro-Russian government was overthrown, uh, so the Russia um, decided that this is a good moment to intervene. And they used this opportunity um, under the guise of protecting Russians in Ukraine, uh, and they seized Crimea. And then they knew that this would be a very popular move among Russians. Um, but, uh, and I mean, if, if they only took Crimea, it'd probably be easier for them. But then what happened is that two other regions in or other parts of uh, regions in Eastern Ukraine also declared independence and said that they are Russians who are fighting against this new government in Kiev and they started fighting. And Russia started helping them informally, unofficially, with supplies, sending soldiers, again, unofficially, so nothing on the scale of like full-blown war. Uh, but it, it was really bloody fighting. And uh, after a couple of years, uh, now there is a ceasefire in Eastern Ukraine between, between those separatist regions and the Ukrainian government. Um, but the situation has not been very stable. There were violations of the ceasefire quite often. But last year, uh, something's changed in the Kremlin's stance on this. And for some reason, which is not entirely clear to me or, or to experts on this, Russia decided to concentrate a lot of troops on, on the Ukrainian border. And if you follow the news, then you know that they, they've issued a list of demands to the West. Right now, the situation is really escalating. So, so that's, that's the historical background. Yeah. And here we are now in the future. Yes. Speaking of which, how is like Russian media covering this whole conflict versus how we're seeing it in the Western media, i.e. the daily? Is there a big difference? Like what are what are Russians hearing? Uh, it depends on what what kind of media Russians are reading or, uh, or watching. Um, uh, so, so, so you know that the Western media are really focused on, on, on this um, possibility of a full-blown war where Russia would just conquer all of Ukraine, uh, go through, uh, through to Kiev and um, uh, basically just try to capture, capture Ukraine. Um, and in Russian media, I think it's more, at least if you look at Russian independent media, the situation is more nuanced. So obviously uh, there are lots of options that Putin could, could do in the situation. And they try to, uh, they, they're trying to cover uh, those possibilities. Uh, from, you know, some incursions, as I think Joe Biden said as well, uh, to our larger scale invasions. And they're also worried about what's going to happen to Russia as a result of that. So, I mean, this is, this is reasonable. They're not less, they're not so alarmist as the media in the West, but they are concerned. But if you look at Russian state media, then this is a completely different story. And it's, it's really like, uh, contradictory as is, is often the case with propaganda. So on the one hand, uh, what they're saying is that Russia is completely peaceful, that Russia never wanted or was interested in attacking anyone. Russia is always just defending from, from outside threats. And uh, Ukrainians are actually our brothers. So we, we love them, they're, they're, they're good. They're just that the government is not great, but we wouldn't want to shed Ukrainian blood. So what we're doing is we're just preparing for, for a possible war instigated by, by the West. 
And what they're saying is that uh, essentially United States or Europe are uh, pushing Ukraine into a war with Russia. And that if anything happens, then it happens because it's Ukraine that, that wants to, to instigate some sort of genocide of Russians in Eastern Ukraine. And if something happens, then it's because Russia uh, only has to respond to this, has to protect those people. That's, that's kind of the message that people hear every day from, from Russian media. And they, they kind of, um, I think that there are some contradictions to that because uh, like if you are peaceful, why would you want to have uh, 20, 100,000 people on the border um, if, if, if no one's announced attacking you? Um, so, but I think another interesting thing, it also represents what the Kremlin thinks about all this. And this is also present in, in state media coverage is that uh, Ukraine is not seen as, a, as, as an actor in this. Ukraine is seen as just a territory. The discussion should be in Putin's view and in, in view of those propaganda people, should be between Putin and the West. And they should decide what's going to happen to Ukraine. It's not about what Ukrainians think. It's not about what the Ukrainian government wants to do. It's just about Putin and settling his scores with the West. Can we tell if this is a popular move that the Russian government has taken? Like, do, does the general Russian support this kind of decision? This, this is complicated because, and the way Putin is going about it, there is no actual decision of what will going to happen. Um, and for example, as they say, we're just moving troops on our territory. We're just doing exercises. We, it's completely fine. But if you ask Russians, and Russians are probably okay with this, uh, but when you ask them whether they want war with Ukraine or even a bigger war, uh, then most of them would not want, want it. I mean, it depends on how you frame it. Like if you say, uh, what if someone attacks us, then it's, of course it's, 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 uh, it's not a matter. But uh, generally people wouldn't want the war with Ukraine, both because they, uh, they do not feel as strongly about Ukraine or Ukrainians. They, maybe many of them would probably feel it would be bad to, uh, to, to go to war with Ukraine. Plus, they, they understand that this would mean a huge human cost to Russia as, uh, as well. Um, also, people, at least those who are more educated, who read more diverse news sources, I think they understand that um, this would mean uh, serious sanctions from the West, and uh, things are not already not going well in Russia. So, for example, even as a result of those movements, the Russian currency devaluated somewhat with respect to the dollar. Uh, Russian stock market has had some trouble recently, and uh, this um, even even those uh, this instability means uh, more inflation. Uh, some. Some, some other problematic uh, things in, in the economy that ordinary Russians would feel, or if they don't feel them right now, they would feel them soon. And if it's, it's, if it's going to be about something more serious, then of course, uh, they, they would feel it even, even strongly, even more strongly. But the question, of course, is how propaganda would be able to frame this. So if they are able to frame this as, as a move that, like, we are back in the corner, there's really no other way for us to, to respond uh, except to go into Ukraine, maybe Putin would be able to sell it to some people. But I think generally public opinion is not pro-war. Yeah.
I know this is an unfair question, but are you willing to make any predictions about how this plays out over the next weeks, months, years? Yeah, uh, <laughs> this, uh, you, you know, yeah, the situation is really fluid. Um, I think uh, what I would say is, I think, first of all, we have to understand that an invasion, uh, what people call invasion, could mean a lot of different things. It could mean uh, just moving uh, troops into those separatist regions. And there actually already are or have been Russian soldiers, Russian military instructors, advisors. They're just unofficially. So uh, Putin could make this official under certain conditions, and there would be more, uh, there would be a stronger military presence there. And it's not clear to what extent we can call this an invasion. Uh, they could also try to, I mean, this is an invasion because in international law supports the current borders of Ukraine, and, and this, those separatist regions are part of Ukraine officially. So under, under law, this is an invasion, but it's a very different thing from, uh, from going into, from going uh, all the way back to Kiev, to tr- trying to actually capture Ukraine, as I mentioned. So I think that's, that, that second possibility is really unlikely. Putin wouldn't want that. And I think, I, I don't think he would get much from, from, from doing that because uh, ultimately he would not be able to keep Ukraine under control, especially Western Ukraine. And he doesn't have the resources for that. Um, so basically what he can do is he, he can increase um, military presence in those separatist regions. He can make it more official under some, some pretense and that, that is, I think, pretty likely, although also not guaranteed. Um, he could also do, uh, just, just continue doing what he is doing right now, um, just keeping troops there around, uh, along the border for a very long time. Russia has, has money for that. Um, they, have, um, um, uh, they have a large military budget. And the problem is that, uh, I mean, the problem for Russia is, is that Leaders like Putin, they're not really constrained uh, with public opinion. Uh, to some extent, they are, as, as I talked about the, the pandemic. But with respect to measures like this, they can say, well, we're just keeping the army there just in case. And I think this is one of the possible outcomes. So it could just continue for months or even more than a year. They would just keep the money or the, the army there and uh, you know, hope that the collective West uh, disagrees about something, that Europe, for example, would be would be more willing to go to to cede something to Putin, um, or that Ukraine itself would be um, would be more uh, would be tired by by the end of the year, right? And um, cede something. Other than that, I think it's it's really hard to try to predict some, some anything here. Problem is for for those who are trying to uh, predict it is that no one knows what Putin really wants, um, and I think no one even inside the Kremlin knows. So unless, unless we have more insight in, in, into his mind, I don't think we were able to, be, uh, were able to be, make better predictions. But um, I think we, we shouldn't expect like a full-blown big war in, in Europe, uh, but we can expect something on a, on a small scale. That's such an interesting takeaway. It all kind of surrounds this one man who we really don't even know that well. Yeah. Well... Obviously, this has been a lovely conversation. And as we're nearing our end here, we want to know, is there anything we haven't talked about that we should have 
slash what are we talking about next time you're on the show? I'm currently doing a couple of, I was starting a couple of projects that uh, try to understand how people, uh, under what conditions people are more likely to resist propaganda, to uncover misinformation, to detect misinformation. So it's possible I, I will have more data uh, then. And um, I mean, there is some hope in, in what we know. Uh, people are still able to uh, somehow resist uh, manipulation attempts. So the question is how we can teach people do this better. Yeah, who knows? Maybe I will have more complete answers on that next time. Anton, before we go here, do you have any hot takes about the figure skating drama and the Russian Olympic Committee? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I don't know really what's what's going on within Russian Olympic sport. I would say that, so, so basically I can't comment on whether whether the allegations are justified or not. But given what, what we know from, from the previous experience, I think there could be. So Russia is, is not innocent of this, definitely. Although again, the, this doesn't say anything about, about particular athletes. It could be a mistake. And I think what, uh, like from, from my standpoint, from, from, from the standpoint of someone who studies propaganda and from a standpoint of someone who's worried about the, what was going to happen in the region. I think what's problematic is that this is happening at this uh, exact moment where there is increased tension and the threat from Russia uh, increases. So it, it's really easy for propaganda, like if they disqualify Oliva, it's really easy to build this into a large narrative of the West aligning against Russia Russia and Russians, and this this would be just another story of how unfair the West is treating Russia, and so uh, they would be probably able to build build on this. Even even I mean even if uh, she's not disqualified, it's still there's still a lot of uh, talk uh, about that, a lot of discussion that's that presents Russia in a in a rather negative light. So yeah, um, I I think. Uh, that Russian Olympic movement is generally strong and uh, lots of great athletes. Um, but the problem is that politics interfere and sometimes those bureaucrats in the movement are trying to do, uh, trying to interfere, trying to push people further. So, and that, that could result in, in, in these scandals. That's, that's what I know. <laughs> On that lovely note, uh, thank you so much for being with us today, Anton. It was, it's been a very informative uh, and interesting time with you. And, you know, like I said, I hope we have, we can have a chance to get you back in the future. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. It was really a pleasure uh, to talk to you. Um, I hope people will learn something useful. For more information, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Addison Lathers and Claire Salmi and produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.